Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy the Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released a new bonus episode about Steve McQueen's Small Axe movie series for Amazon, and we have another in the works about our favorite TV shows of 2020. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here with... Keith Phipps. Tasha Robinson. And Genevieve Kosky. Back on March 2nd, we got together for a recording of an episode on The Invisible Man and Gaslight. Little did we suspect it would be the last time we'd do a show in person again. And when we followed that episode with a special pairing of Panic in the Streets and Contagion... We did not expect to be doing episodes in quarantine for the remainder of the year, with theaters largely closed and the streaming universe evolving dramatically before our eyes. On today's special one-off episode of The Next Picture Show, we wanted to take some time to reflect on this most unusual movie year and share our individual top five films of 2020. We've also invited some guests who have appeared on the show to share their hidden gems, a movie that may or may not be their favorite of the year, but is the one they've championed the most. We've scattered those voicemails throughout the episode. But before we get started, here's one from our assistant producer, Dan Jakes, who wants to uh, recommend a very under-the-radar film that that many of you probably didn't see, so that's what the whole point of this is. Uh, Take it away, Dan. Hey, Next Picture Show crew. Dan the Big and or Snake Jakes here. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to share with listeners my favorite under-the-radar hit of 2020, and that is Swedish-Georgian director Levin Atkins' And Then We Danced, a contemporary queer romance set in the not-particularly-gay-friendly world of traditional Georgian dance. Levin Gelbagani and Bachi Valvishi star as performers vying for positions within an elite troupe in the National Georgian Ensemble. The film deals with complicated ideas about gender expression and types of strength uh, and is not without pathos. Uh, You do see characters um, whom you fall in love with uh, at their lowest both professionally and personally, but for every emotional ask that the movie makes of its audience, it rewards them with moments of triumph, uh, defiant moments of triumph at that, uh, and they are so full of joy and life. Uh, you're really going to walk away from this movie feeling very good. The percussion in this movie, a lot of it being diegetic, playing out in a rehearsal studio, uh, it just gets in your bones. And speaking of great uses of music, there is a bedroom scene where Gabagani dances shirtless in a giant plumy uh, Georgian papaka hat to Robin's Honey, uh, which is just a gorgeous celebration of a queer body in motion. And then We Danced, uh, which is a music box films production, so consider sending them some love. Uh, It is currently available to watch right now on Amazon Prime. So did any of you all see And Then We Danced, by the way? Mm-hmm. No. no. I, I, yeah, it played at the music box, and I remember both Dan and Oliver were just like over the moon for it, but that was like at the beginning of the year when I was no yeah. longer in Chicago. If I was, mm-hmm. I I probably would have gone to see it with them. Yeah, I saw it and reviewed it for NPR. I don't know if I was quite as enthusiastic as Dan, but it's very pleasant. And, you know, I think it's something that you can watch with a lot of different types of people and, and appreciate. And it's got a good spirit to it. And it's a good choice. Um, so now normally, we would use this early part of the episode for scripted tomfoolery. But uh, we have a lot to get through today. 
Oh, come on, Scott. The scripted tomfoolery is my favorite part of this script. Did you even have anything in mind for this week? Well, I was working on a Billy Crystal-style musical tribute to the bleak Russian drama Beanpole, if you want to hear it. Uh, for the sake of pacing, uh, I think we should probably move forward. Well, you'd be surprised how many words rhyme with Leningrad. Uh, Scott, don't make us cut your mic. <sighs> okay, fine. So I wanted to spend the first part of this episode talking about this extremely strange and sad and fitfully inspired year for movies and what it may or may not mean for the future. And I just wanted to start by asking, what was the last movie you saw in the theater? And were, were you aware that it was going to be the last movie you saw in a theater? <laughs> no, no, certainly not. <laughs> it was actually Invisible Man for this podcast. And like I went to see a matinee with my husband. I, I did not ascribe any particular importance to it. Uh, it was still in February, so uh, it wasn't even entirely on the horizon at that point. And I just remember so vividly uh, telling my one of my direct reports at Polygon, she was starting to be a little concerned about seeing critic screenings in theaters in New York City. And she asked if they carry on doing these are we going to be able to reach some sort of accommodation? And I said, I don't know about that. I wouldn't worry about them stopping doing critic screenings. I mean, there's no way they do that. There's just too much money on the table. <laughs> like, you know, said with uh, all of the certainty of someone who had no idea what a week would bring. So yeah, I know it didn't even begin to occur to me at that time that this was the last time I would be in a theater for maybe a year. Yeah, ditto uh, Invisible Man for this podcast. And I think I saw it a little later than you. I think it was like, may have been. When did we get together? Did you say, Scott? March? Uh, it was the second. Okay. It was, I guess it would be late February then. Uh, and it was a an evening screening. I had, I had a beer. I was by myself. <laughs> I kicked back. I relaxed. I enjoyed the film. And then I thought nothing. I had no idea. I mean, I know it, it was, you know, there were possibilities on the horizon of problems. But, you know, like everyone else, I, I first didn't think it would, it would hit us. And second, I thought it would be, you know, when, when the lockdown started, uh, I thought it would be over in a couple weeks, and then we'd be right back to the way we were. And here we are in uh, December. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I wish I would have savored it more. What about you, Genevieve? Yeah, um, I think I've talked before uh, on this podcast that the last movie I saw in theaters this year was Emma, which was not at a critic screening because I've been living in Michigan for a, a while now and uh, as such no longer get to go to critic screenings alongside you guys, uh, which is a bummer and definitely sort of even before this pandemic kind of altered my movie going habits because I had to go to the multiplex and pay for a movie every time I wanted to go see something like all of our listeners <laughs> get annoyed when we talk about <laughs> critic screenings, I'm, I'm sure. But consequently, like I just wasn't going to the movies as frequently as when I lived in Chicago, still, you know, uh, several times a month, but it was a little less of a regular thing. So, uh, but I remember going to see Emma, which was right around the same time. Um, I guess it was released in early March. I, I honestly can't remember if, I mean, I guess the pandemic must have been on my radar by then, but I honestly don't remember like taking it into consideration going to the theater, which I went with my mom. And I think like there was briefly some talk of us pairing it with Clueless, which as mm. longtime followers of us will know is 
probably the film that I'm most likely to say is my favorite movie, although I hate declaring a favorite movie. <laughs> um, but the, the Emma Clueless pairing uh, didn't happen. But I did see Emma, a film I, I like quite a lot. Um, I think it's on my expanded uh, top films list of, of, of the year. It's not going to be uh, certainly not in the top five. But if we were talking, you know, top 20 or so, yeah, I, I could see it sneaking in there. We just watched it. It's really charming. I liked. I liked it too. I think it, we can start the timeline a bit, a little bit. I think it had to have been on your radar because I remember we went to the wedding the weekend before lockdown started, or two weekends before, so early March, and there was sort of a sense that something was coming, but you know the idea of a lockdown, that kind of yeah. stuff, uh, not not at all. And then it really did seem to kind of sweep across, um, you know, the country really quickly in terms of. Mm-hmm us realizing we had to do something pretty quickly to, to deal with this. Yeah. Well, I, I had gone to basically the last film festival before the pandemic, right. that, which is true false. You know, there everybody, people were washing their hands. I remember I had a very funny situation where I had an hour long interview with uh, Kirsten Johnson for the director of Dick Johnson is dead for the ringer. And, uh, we greeted each other, but with an elbow bump and then proceeded to sit about a foot away from each other for an hour <laughs> talking. So people didn't know what they were doing back then. Yeah. Um, my last movie I saw in the theater though, was also on assignment was, uh, I saw first cow at the landmark at, because the New York times wanted to do a piece about what's the deal with all these people going to the movies when there's a pandemic going on. And so I went there on assignment to just, you know, kind of interview a couple of people and get a quote and that sort of thing. And I got to see first cow, which is, you know, spoiler alert, one of my favorite films of the year. So I got that out of it, but it was a very memorable experience kind of being there. And again, people being sitting too close to me, even though it was not that crowded a theater and, you know, a lot of things in retrospect don't look so good at that time when we didn't know exactly what to do as we do now but one of the questions i wanted to ask all of you now that a vaccine is on the horizon is uh, whether you see your habits changing as a movie or once you can go uh, safely back into a theater so i think assuming we can all feel safe which i think it'll take a little while to get to that point I think immediately I'll go every night. <laughs> and then <laughs> after that, I imagine it would dial back to something like it was before. What about everybody else? But I mean, what at what point will you feel uh, safe going every night? Like, at what point will it feel like I don't need to worry about this anymore and I can just indulge all I want? I'm not going to go until I feel 100% safe. So when I start going, I'll, I'll feel like I can go every night if I want to, you know, uh, or I won't go at all. I, I, I was tempted when theaters reopened here, I was very tempted to go. Music Box, our, our favorite theater, uh, pl- free plug, uh, was playing like 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is a movie I never missed to get a chance to see screened. Um, and I, I missed a chance to get it see screened because I just wasn't there, you know, nothing against the decision. But I, I just, because we have no clear guidance from um, the top levels of the government, uh, we kind of had to like make our own decisions as to what where we our comfort levels are and uh, I just wasn't there so um, I'm dying to get back but not going to die to get back sure but when you say I won't go back till I feel 100% safe what does that look like will you feel safe when you get inoculated will you feel safe when a certain percentage of Chicago has reportedly been inoculated like what's it going to take I don't know. I mean, I don't even trust the point of the question here. I think it's more like a theoretical. We're on the other side of this. What do you do with movie theaters, right, Scott? I mean, I, I'm I, asking in part because these are kind of the questions that I'm struggling with. Like, I think yeah. that we're going to be surprised at how quickly things go back to normal for a large percentage of the population when 
at least a small percentage of the population starts having those feelings of, okay, I'm safe now. But I don't know what it's going to take to get there. Like, there are going to be a certain percentage of people who are going to refuse to get inoculated. There are going to be a certain mm. percentage of people who, the second they get inoculated, will be like, I'm safe. Everything's back to normal now. I'm just going to go live my life. And kind of for the rest of us that have been cautious and complying with, you know, suggested best practices all along, I, I don't know what uh, deciding that I'm safe looks like. I, I think mm. it's going to be a while before I'm back in theaters voluntarily. I think I have to be inoculated. I think it's the thing, you know, and and my I know public health official, but my understanding is that if, an, you know, if not everybody gets inoculated, but enough people get inoculated, the chance of the odds of, of getting it go way down. But, you know, well, and not to be a bummer about the vaccine, but we don't yet really know if being vaccinated keeps you from spreading uh, mm. the, uh, the virus versus just keeping you from from getting sick. And, you know, that's something we will know hopefully uh, down down the line but because of just what Tasha is talking about everyone's sort of varying degrees of comfort i guess for me it's just it's a matter of the numbers and when community spread is down to negligible levels and mm -hmm. hopefully that happens with a vaccine but definitely i think it's definitely going to take longer than a lot of people are are hoping for but as to the actual question I mean, I already spoke a little bit about how my movie going habits changed uh, when, when I left Chicago. And, you know, I, where I am currently living, I was very sort of dependent on large multiplexes. So it's going to be interesting to see how large multiplexes come out on the other side of this. There's talk that, you know, AMC will be bankrupt by the end of this year. You know, they're paying for huge swaths of real estate that are, are mostly empty, you know, like a place like the Music Box is obviously struggling in its own ways, but is, a you know, as a movie house with one large screen and one small one and, you know, being an independent organization, you know, it seems to me that it might be better positioned to, to ride this out than some of the larger multiplex chains. So I'm just kind of curious what that's going to look like on the other side of this. And I know that's where the vast majority of moviegoers consume their movies as is at those multiplexes. So I guess that's the big question for me. That said, I don't know if I will still be multiplex dependent uh, <laughs> on the other side of this because I am moving and there there is a movie house somewhat close to where I'm going to be. So yeah, it's going to be different no matter what. I am definitely excited to go back to the movies, but I also had sort of already been trending toward a greater comfort with home viewing than the good old days back in Chicago. You know, I think it's just uh, sort of where I am in my life right now. I think a complication for all of us is going to be we're going to be a little bit driven by what the studios decide to do in terms of screenings. As with so many other cases where we talk about how we consume culture, how we make those decisions, why, what our rituals are around them. All of our cases are kind of different because we're doing this professionally. And if the studios decide three months from now that they're going back to large scale in-person screenings, and that's the only way you can see a movie in time to make the embargo uh, for the review, we may be pushed into theaters before we're necessarily ready mm -hmm. for that. There may be enough pushback against that Um both from critics who don't want to endanger themselves and from the public, you know, just the knowing that a given company is potentially endangering people, I would think would 
make them not want the publicity problems that go with that. But much as I was completely wrong in the call about whether they were going to cancel films, I feel like I don't have any confidence, in my opinion, at this point about when they're going to go back to those screenings. We've seen over the course of this year that they're perfectly capable of providing at-home viewing options for pretty much anything that they want covered. And I think there's going to be a lot more desire for that comfort. Like, I would certainly, as much as I understand the desire to force us to see whatever the latest action movie is, on the biggest screen possible with the most enthusiastic crowd possible, I would rather watch the new James Bond at home rather than spending an hour getting downtown, spending $25 to park, spending an hour getting back home afterwards, and then trying to sit down and and write the review. The convenience trap is very popular in America. You know, we'd we'd all like the option of uh, doing things kind of like the easier way that takes less of our extraordinarily valuable and in-demand time. And I think there's going to be uh, just an ongoing push for maybe maybe we don't want to be in theaters if we don't have to. And there's going to be more pushback for the new James Bond movie than there's going to be for next year's first cow equivalents. But I think it's going to be very interesting seeing where studios fall about all Mm. of that. I mean, speaking personally, the moment I'm at all safe to go back into theaters, I'm going to make a beeline there. I just, I, it's home to me and I need to go back and it's something I want to continue to do. But I, but I am interested in that question and whether the pandemic sort of hastened a move toward home, home viewing that can't be reversed, whether habits that we have formed over the stretch of time are going to be long lasting or whether you might have people like me who are like, Oh my God, it's going to be this thing that I took for granted for so long. This experience of being in the dark, you know, watching a movie with a bunch of strangers and eating popcorn or whatever that I used to enjoy, you know, I'm going to feel even more appreciative of that experience now that I, you know, know what it's like to have it taken away. Very curious to see what's going to happen. What long-term effect of, of this is going to be on theater going. I think Keith's description of how he's going to handle it is probably going to be how a lot of people are going to handle it. I think there's going to be a lot of like storming out to the theaters to have that experience again and for the novelty of getting out of the house and doing something communal. But I do think that long term, our habits have shifted somewhat and people are very aware that there are thousands upon thousands of things that they could be watching uh, from the comfort of their own home without necessarily spending the travel time, paying the amount of money they need to pay and just going through the hassle. People have been complaining very loudly nonstop for the past 10 years about the mortifying ordeal of dealing with other people in movie theaters. I think there's going to be a a short period where people just want to get back and like have a nostalgia for the guy in the front row that won't turn off his phone uh, Mm. or the, the woman that smuggled in a 15 piece chicken dinner for her entire family and they're all loudly eating it. And I think (laughs) that nostalgia will be very short lived and then uh, people will be kind of uh, ready to go back to the convenient, easy way of doing things. So I hope you're wrong. I do think, though, it does underline, you know, a a long simmering dissatisfaction with the multiplex experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think, you know, those of us that love our our smaller art houses are going to be fine doing that. Uh, There's a couple of neighborhood theaters here in Chicago that I really like a lot, too. But I, you know, there are very few multiplexes I look forward going to. And, you know, they're, they're struggling already. I do wonder how if if people will kind of check back in and then check back out if, if that experience itself hasn't improved. I don't know, though. We'll see. I'm rooting for 
all of it. I'm rooting for all of them to succeed, uh, you know, but because um, I, I really don't want the theatrical experience to go away. But uh, there are many advantages. And, and as a borderline misanthrope, I, I certainly had enough bad movie going experiences to sometimes wish I could watch everything at home. But uh, uh, when it comes down to it, seeing a movie in a theater is still what I think of when I think of seeing a movie. So I have a, some other questions for you, but uh, maybe we should listen to another voicemail from uh, one of our contributors. Here's one from Allison Wilmore. Hey there, Next Picture Show. It's Allison Wilmore. I'm a critic at Vulture and New York Magazine, and I was a guest host on the House That Shirley Built episodes about The Haunting and Shirley. Uh, the Under the Radar film that I wanted to give a shout-out to from this year is Dan Salat's 14, which is a portrait of a friendship between two women who met when they were young and have stayed friends, even though their personalities are so different. And what I loved about this film is the way that time just kind of slips by so that you have to reorient yourself in each scene when you understand that maybe weeks or months, maybe even years have passed. You know, this friendship starts off initially a little confounding. It feels like one character is constantly being called upon by the other and is always being put in a position of not being able to trust her friend. But I think by the time the movie ends, you understand that it is essentially a whole arc of their lives contained in this film in a way that's really, I think, effective and very sad. Um, so yeah, 14. It's worth checking out. Thank you, Allison. Uh, has anyone uh, else seen 14 by Dan Salit? It's really mm-hmm. great. <laughs> it's very good. It was like right on the cusp of my list. I'm not sure really even why it didn't make it there. Uh, but I'll, I guess there are other films I like more. But uh, really good recommendation <laughs> from Allison. And it was one of those just virtual cinema things that I did early on. You feel good about it. You get a little bit of money to the distributor, a little to the uh, theater of your choice, and you get to see a very good, genuine, independent film from a director with, a, I think, a quite an interesting European sensibility, almost kind of a Ozu Pialat type of thing happening with him. So good stuff. So back to some questions here. One thing I wanted to ask was like, what is a movie worth now? Because we've seen huge first run movies get released on streaming services for nothing more than the subscription fee. But we've also seen Universal charge $20 for people to rent a film like Never Rarely, Sometimes Always or Disney charge $30 for essentially visitation rights to the the live action Mulan provided that the people paying $30 also have the Disney Plus service. And at the same time, as I just mentioned, indie distributors have offered films for $12 on virtual cinema, which splits the returns uh, with the indie theaters of your choice. So where are we now? I mean, what are people going to think a movie is worth? I mean, we also have Wonder Woman and... Soul. Soul coming out on their services again for not, you know, you're not paying anything beyond that, beyond what you pay for the service. So, where is that going to leave us? I think the really easy answer there is we don't know. And it's not exactly our job to know because the people at studios that are getting paid big bucks to solve this question don't know right now either. I think that it's less up to us to solve this question 
and more up to us to give our answers to the question in terms of where we put our money. Because right now, the response, the studios are just all over the place. They're experimenting, very visibly experimenting with what people will pay and when they will pay it and how long they're going to keep paying it. And a lot of it is just going to depend on how much people are willing to, as you say, uh, pay 30 bucks for visitation rights uh, to a movie (laughs) that they end up then not owning. The Mulan experiment was apparently quite successful, and I'm well, actually really? a little surprised uh, uh, financially. Yeah, yeah. Disney oh. claims it had it was. The, there is always the question, much as when Netflix comes out and says this was our most successful uh, thing ever, we're not going to tell you how many people watched it. There's always the question of like whether it's all corporate smoke. Yeah, I think yeah. Disney has not repeated that. Yeah, and, you know, with Soul, that. it seemed like an yeah. obvious one to do it with. Suggest so to me, it's not. I mean, I wanted to see Mulan, but I, I did not pay that especially with with knowing that it was coming to the to the streaming service in in december anyway i just you know i did not pull the trigger i did pay 20 dollars to see bill and ted face the music because i wanted to see it you know and i figured hey, it's ten, two tickets at the theater my wife and i will pay ten dollars each anyway so here we right you know, well you go. that logic is why i don't really understand the sort of snide remarks about you know paying 30 dollars to get visitation rights to a film because like something like mulan you know in the before times you buy like four movie tickets for two adults and two children at the theater like you're going to pay that amount and you're not going to own the movie afterwards you know you're getting visitation rights at the theater. So it seemed to me like that decision on Disney Plus's part got a lot of flack that I just didn't really get the logic behind because it was just sort of translating the movie ticket experience to streaming. As far as like, you know, the devaluization of film, you know, I think the HBO plus Warner Brothers thing is like a lot more insidious here because it is just wrapped in to your monthly fee. And I don't know about you guys, but like I have so many streaming services at this point. It just is like I don't even really think about what I'm paying for them anymore. Maybe that's a problem for another podcast, I guess. But like, I think if you do value the film going experience, you should be willing to pay for the experience of watching the film without owning it. Um, well, I think that's why the virtual theater thing right. has, has been seems has been pretty successful because people feel good about you know giving a little bit to a theater and, and supporting it that way. Whereas you know making sure that Disney gets an extra you know some extra money is not a high priority for right. Me, well, I and, guess. and it, it really I think varies greatly from film to film. Like you mm-hmm. know Mulan is a film that you would take the whole family to. Baccarat, you know, probably less so. <laughs> um, so you know. It's as far as what Tasha was saying about, you know, everyone's kind of experimenting, there is no real one size fits all here because it's very dependent on the type of movie, the studio, you know, the investment the studio has made in that film, um, the perceived audience. It's just it's sort of an unknowable calculus. And the actual audience. I mean, as far as Mulan goes, Disney's seen huge, ridiculous returns for its extremely mediocre to outright bad live action adaptations of films. <laughs> there was every motivation to try to, to get people over a barrel and get some extra money out of them for Mulan. I don't know that that calculus is there for Soul. Disney, it seems to me, has just kind of relentlessly devalued Pixar movies since acquiring Pixar. And just may not have the same attitude toward it in in terms of like what they feel they can get out of it. But uh, it honestly depends. 
there's the certainly the perception that with a movie like Mulan, there's a humongous built-in audience. Like the, the audience that saw Cinderella or Beauty and the Beast, the live action versions in theaters, made those movies like billion dollar releases. So there may have just been the assumption that there was the the audience there. I don't know whether they necessarily feel there is that kind of audience for Soul, you know, for any Pixar movie. This is just, you bringing up Soul reminded me of Onward, which I think was also sort of an early case study here because it was like on the cusp of, of when theaters started closing down and got released early to Disney Plus, along with what, what else? There was another big Disney film that got like released as like, oh, it was Frozen 2. Mm. Um, you know, and, and Disney Plus, I think, kind of took those early pandemic days as an opportunity to be like, here's a present of a film that you can watch now uh, that you normally would have had to wait another three or four months to watch in your home. Yeah, so. Onwards was supposed to be the last movie I saw. It would have been the last movie I saw in yeah. the theater, but we were like, ah, we'll see it next weekend. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, yeah. I mean, the Again, though, there's corporate uh, machinations that work there. I'm willing to bet that they wanted to rush Onward onto a platform and uh, try to like balance out the money it lost by having its theatrical run interrupted so rudely is just something that they have to consider in terms of how they pre-valued that movie in terms of loans and taxes and whether they had to take a huge huge write down on it as if it was a giant loss or if they could leverage it into Disney subscriptions which they seem to have tried to do i don't know to what degree or in via what calculus that worked out for them but it was a pretty unique situation i i feel bad for movies like that and first cow that were in theaters. I feel less bad for The Hunt, but uh, my, <laughs> my boss loves that movie. He put it on our best of the year list. Hmm, but the movies that were, had just opened in theaters when all of this went down ended up in a particularly tangled financial situation. I want to make a couple of points. I mean, one is that the financials of this are so opaque in the digital age, but we can't know what's successful and not. We can only kind of guess. <laughs> you know, we can kind of guess how well Mulan did or did not do. We can kind of guess how well maybe a movie like Never Really Sometimes Always did at $20 a, a pop. We can kind of guess of, about virtual cinema whether it worked in some cases or not we just don't know because we, we're not giving those numbers which is very frustrating so there's that and the other thing is that i think we're seeing a very interesting dynamic between the short term and the long term in the, in the short term we're in the middle of a massive streaming war which is what explains warner brothers and the hbo max thing so warner brothers you know warner brothers in the short term stands to benefit tremendously in subscriptions for HBO Max when it releases all of these really big movies, these 2021 movies, Wonder Woman and Dune and Matrix and all that stuff onto HBO Max simultaneously the theaters. And that helps it to gain the kind of stature that a company like Netflix has. And it makes it worthwhile potentially financially to do that. But of course, long term, it devalues theaters, which is a, a whole nother traditional window in which studios could expect to make, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on their movies. And if, and if that gets devalued, if people 
you know just prefer to watch things at, at home or if movies are being released simultaneously to theaters and to homes then that doesn't speak well of the future of the for studios it doesn't speak well of the future of for filmmaking it doesn't speak well for uh the future of movie theaters and maybe not even well for the sustainability of streaming services right you know do you ever forget movie theaters are still open some places like i just checked the weekend box office here's a little mm-hmm. bit of trivia for you at number five in its 10th week of release, grossing a whopping $264,000, it is a war with Grandpa. <laughs> wow. De Niro's back, baby. I get press releases from time to time from uh, people who want us to promote their movie and do the big in-depth uh, feature on you know how this scrappy little indie movie that only costs $200,000 has made $400,000 uh-huh. in uh, 10 weeks in, uh, in cinemas. But at the same time, that you know might put it at, at number three at the box office. In normal times, a two hundred thousand dollar movie hitting number one at the box office for even a week would be really, really big news. And now it's kind of like, congratulations, you came in first in the race that only you are running. <laughs> uh, but they're still they're still trying to leverage it. They're doing their best. God help them. Yeah, I mean, apparently there were two, over two thousand theaters still open somewhere, but I, I don't know. Two thousand yeah. screens. Two thousand screens. Yes. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that would be a remarkable number of theaters. Yeah, so I think I, about that from time to time when we're talking blithely. Like my my big concern is that we continue talking blithely about how uh, theaters everywhere are closed when at a point where 50% of the country has reopened. Uh, just, you know, always pace to remember that your experience is not everybody else's experience. It has made the pandemic has made a dent in the box office for the two thousand and twenty though we can safely <laughs> say that um, so I, I wanted to shift from the big picture to just the year in film generally um, you know with, with a few exceptions, a lot of studio movies were cleared away from two thousand and twenty and major festivals were either canceled or limited in their offerings so what what did that leave us with? Did you feel like when you looked at the year in film 2020, did it feel like an unusually weak or incomplete year to you? Weak is like a weird word to apply to it because like, you know, if you want to think in terms of box office or, you know, just pure number of people that saw films, like, yeah, I guess it was. But it was also almost refreshing to have a year that was mostly devoid of big tent poles that just suck up all the energy and all the conversation. And like, yeah, it was a little sad not to have some of those conversations. Like there is something to be said for everyone experiencing the same cultural object more or less at at the same time. And this year, which is with the way things have been so diffuse across various services, like it's very difficult for there to be any sort of event film that, you know, everyone wants to talk about at the same time. But at the same time, there is room for a lot of different films to be discussed that would normally be drowned out by the next, well, I don't want to say the next Bond movie, because honestly, that probably wouldn't generate that much conversation. The next MCU but the, movie. The, yeah, the next MCU movie is, is what I was going to say. So this isn't what I would want every year to be like, but, you know, as someone who has mourned, as I know all of you have to some extent, sort of the disappearance of the, you know, the mid-budget movie. Like, it's been a good year for that kind of movie. I I have several on on my list that would kind of 
fall under that designation. I think somebody should write an essay about that. And I think they should write it for Polygon.com. <laughs> and I think they should write it earlier the week of, of, of this week that we're recording. And I think that person should be on this podcast right now. And I think he should speak up. Uh, well, I mean, I, oh, you're, you're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of did cover that a little bit. Like it was, was going to be was like nice. Tasha. I can't write for Polygon. <laughs> the thing is, like, I should have already covered a lot of it. It's like, I, I did, you know, I did kind of clear the field a little bit and allow something other than the usual suspects to become the big movies people talked about. Like, I, I used Happiest Season as an example. Like, you know, there was a uh, it seemed to engulf the film conversation on Twitter for a little bit, which was um, not saying you, you know, it, it would inevitably be overshadowed by Eternals or something else that came out uh, this fall that would be the big thing that everyone was talking about so it's you know i don't want to say refreshing because nothing about this year has been refreshing but it has been if there's a silver lining it has been to see the conversation shift away from the biggest possible tentpole movies at the same time, I, I mean, I am missing consensus cultural conversation. Mm-hmm. Film Twitter is very good for today. We're all discussing happiest season, or perhaps for this six hour period, we're all discussing happiest <laughs> season, but it moves on so rapidly and mm. you really have to be in the exact window uh, for any given thing. Whereas, you know, when an Avengers Endgame comes out, you can find your people online, like no matter how you feel about that film or about The Last Jedi or, you know, whatever large scale film has just come out, you can find your people who have opinions, at least somewhere in the family of your opinions, and discuss the nuances of where you disagree and the interesting parts of where you agree. And when it's a happiest season or a first cow, which some people saw in theaters before it closed, and some people saw through screeners later, and some people saw when it launched on VOD, and then some people saw it when it launched on disc. Like, that's just such a particulated conversation. It becomes much more difficult to have those kind of talks. And, and I do miss that quality of it. Last night, everyone was watching Baccarat for some reason. Like, I saw like five different people talking about Baccarat. I'm not sure why. I mean, I, I understand why they're talking about it, but why all at that time? Right now, and this has just been an interesting trend this year in general, so many of those things, especially like the little blow ups on Twitter about one film or another, is because of some like Q&A based screening somewhere, you know, the, mm. the director and star are hosting a virtual screening of it where a bunch of people watch it at the same time and then talk about it on social media. And it ends up seeming overrepresented because the conversation is solely happening on social media. And it does sort of even more than usual, it's kind of easy to have a feeling that there's a party going on somewhere that you're not invited to. In the same sort of way that like Sven uh, trends every week uh, on Twitter for a little while. It makes me happy, though. I don't know. It makes me happy, too. I think it's uh, I think it's adorable. Or critical role, for that matter. Like, I like the fact that there's still appointment viewing and enough fans to have that kind of conversation together. Like, I'm not part of either one of those communities, but it makes me happy that they exist. You know, when I look at, like, this year compared to even, like, last year, just raw numbers-wise or raw titles-wise, it's just weaker. (laughs) I mean, like, my top ten list. But last year, I think, was also a very, very strong year. And I think one of the things that we're missing, it's not just studio fare, and I I agree with everyone who was talking about feeling a little bit of relief to have a break from the big studio organs and to be able to kind of seal up maybe a little smaller sort of base hit type of films uh, than the big swings. But one thing that's been missing 
in a huge way for this year is film festivals, major film festivals uh, in the in the spring and in the fall as an organ for in big important films that we all want to talk about. Films like last year was like Parasite, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I mean, these are all festival movies. And Knives made Out. The, right, Knives Out. Right, that made made this very huge impression. And, and um, not having that this year undoubtedly made a difference to my mind. And, and um, the, the one thing I actually am thinking about, though, quarantine and with productions being halted or for a while, was that it could result in better movies. <laughs> like, have you thought about, like, how often movies are rushed to production without the script being completely together. Mm. I mean, to have, you know, two or three months or six months or however long to kind of refine a project to kind of keep grinding away the script and keep thinking about different ways of shooting or structuring a movie. I mean, it could lead to, we could have like a brief burst of uh, creative excitement coming out of the pandemic just because people have had to sit on things a little bit longer. Is that true, though? I mean, for all the filmmakers I've interviewed over the past 15 plus years, the story of I tried to get this film made for 10 straight years through endless revisions and endless financial struggles is so much more common than we rushed this out. Where the rush always seems to happen is in the actual shooting, in the actual production. And I don't see COVID slowing that down. I see it interfering with it a great deal and hmm. slowing it down in the sense that it's just harder to do everything. It's harder to get uh, a number of people on set without going through all of the compliance stuff. It's harder to do anything without a whole lot of extra planning, but it's not planning around where you're going to put the camera and what the shot looks like. It's planning about like how you're going to meet all of the requirements. I don't feel like the problem with an awful lot of movies is they didn't spend enough time planning them. At least the kind of movies that you, Scott Tobias, uh, personally love. <laughs> like MCU movies or Star Wars movies, God help us, may go through script process way too fast and end up with way too many holes. But the filmmakers that you love have a tendency to have been sitting on that script for five years, 10 years, 20 years trying to get it made. Maybe. I was just kind of a spitballing, you know. Well, real quick, let me uh, answer your, your spitball with another spitball of my own, because while I agree with the point that I, I you know, I don't think it's especially likely that, you know, there's going to be a, a huge rush to <laughs> to filming. I do think it, this has the potential to do some interesting things in terms of casting because of just the way that scheduling actors works. And if a bunch of films are kind of going into production all at the same time, you know, the sort of the usual suspects are you know, going to be committed here or there. And I, I so I think casting directors might end up casting a, a wider net in order to sort of fill the holes left behind by this sort of uh, schedule push of the last year. That's just something I'm curious to see the effect of. And it's honestly something we may not see the effect of, but that's my spitball. <laughs> yeah. So we are done with the talking about the year in film overview section of the podcast. And now we're going to get to get to the my favorite part, which is listing them in order. God, you and your lists. God. Yes. So, you so your we'll, ranking. We will be right back to talk about our top five films of 2020.
so now it's time to go around the horn and share our favorite films of 2020. I know some of you, or maybe all of you but me, <laughs> had some reservations about doing a ranked list, uh, whether it's because you have gaps in your viewings, or it's an unusual year, or you just don't love ranking things, or some combination of the three, uh, but I've bullied you into doing it, <laughs> and I feel only just a little bit bad about it. So before each of you reveal your number five, feel free to share some of the films you regret missing or not including, or whatever other qualifications uh, you have, and then just jump into the number five, Keith. Let's start with you. Uh, what is your number five? Oh, I guess, yeah, we'll start with the uh, true confessions here. Okay, ramble, I, you know, then as, as always, I run out of time. So films I wanted to get to, a few films I wanted to get to that I just haven't include One Night in Miami, The Sound of Metal, uh, La Llorona, a horror movie I keep hearing great things about, The 40-Year-Old Version, and Another Round. Uh, these, are, these are some big ones I didn't get to. Some things that are hovering outside my top 10 would include uh, Relic, which I recommended recently, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which I think, you know, if we were doing performances, we'd be talking about that film a, a lot, maybe some other time. Palm Springs really loves, uh, you know, I'm going to tip my hand a little bit, but Soul, I really liked a lot. Uh, didn't make my top 10, though. Um, so I'm going to do 10 through 6 real quickly, because my number 5 is a movie we just talked about at length. So number 10 is Vast of Night, which is a very low-budget science fiction film uh, from an Oklahoma filmmaker named Andrew Patterson, which I don't want to spoil too much about. It's on Amazon Prime. There's a lot of different styles going on in this film. It's got one of the most amazing shots you'll see in a movie this year. Uh, number nine is uh, Minari, which I just watched today. It's a wonderful and complicated drama uh, inspired by the director's life growing up in as a Korean immigrant in Arkansas. Number eight is The Assistant, which we have covered. Number seven is David Byrne's American Utopia, which we have covered. Number six is The Five Bloods, which we have covered and talked about. And number five is Wolfwalkers, which I, th I said a lot about last week. So I maybe I'll just, I, I will just uh, let my ramble end there. But uh, uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful film. I'm looking forward to watching again uh, with my kid and possibly without my kid. Uh, it's a complicated and beautiful um, looking piece of animation from Cartoon Saloon. So with that, I am done with my first uh, entry. Okay, Tasha, qualifications plus number five. Hit it. I'm not going to do my bottom five because I, in a few days, I'm going to be recording uh, our end of year show on film spotting, where I usually come in to guest with Michael Phillips of the Chicago Tribune. And those recording sessions uh, in recent years have stretched out to five, six hour marathons <laughs> as each of us try to do like 10 films with four people discussing each of those 40 films. There's often not a lot of overlap. This year, we're going to try a format that hopefully will make the whole process fleeter, but I will be doing a top 10 over there. And it, fun fact, I think it's very likely that my top five is going to be different in four days when I record that show than it's going to be here because of uh, some things that I need to screen that I think are very, very likely to make the list. But we'll see how that goes and it'll give me something to discuss over there. I feel pretty proud that most of the film's Keith mentioned as having not gotten to our films that I saw, and none of them made my list. So I'm I'm also okay with that. So just just skip them with what you're saying, then don't don't bother. <laughs> uh, no, they're all really interesting and textured films. But again, kind of a preview of, of coming events. I would say everything on my top five this year falls more under the category of interesting textured films, like films that 
I think are ambitious and interesting and very memorable, but films that in a normal year might not necessarily make my top 10 or my top five. I think they're all idiosyncratic and they've stuck with me in really interesting ways. I don't know whether they're the best films of uh, 2020 because I also feel like there's a lot of uh, films I didn't see this year. It's been really interesting this year reading people's top 20 lists as they've come in 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 different publications. Like, I'll read the one in Rolling Stone and say, hey, I saw every one of those films and I feel pretty good about that. And then I'll read the one in Harper's Bazaar and say, I saw almost none of those films. That's really interesting. The diversity of picks this year is just going to be really across the board. And having just said that, I think it's kind of hilarious to point out that my number five is also Wolf Walkers. (laughs) (laughs) I'll say maybe a little more than Keith about it. The visuals of this film are just going to stick with me. Everything that Tom Moore produces, everything really that his studio, his Irish studio, Cartoon Saloon produces, is just so impeccably crafted. And in a way, that's just kind of what it comes down to. Like, it's a moving film. It's an emotional, evocative film. But it's also just one of those movies that you can see the conscious and deliberate thought and effort that went into literally every frame. And it's just, I think it's one of those movie gifts that's just going to keep on giving. Can I just say, though, that Cartoon Saloon is like the Pucahontas of of, <laughs> of, uh, of animation house names. It's so terrible, and, and their movies are so good. Genevieve, what about what about you? Qualifications plus number five. Uh, well, my qualifications are that it was a movie I saw this year, um, because I frankly did not see nearly as many movies this year as I had in previous years. The aforementioned lack of critic screenings uh, is certainly a part of that, but also a big part of it is my job is television, and I have to watch a lot of television, and television generally takes a lot longer <laughs> to watch all of than it takes to watch a movie. So there is a, a lot I missed this year, and that's why I was honestly very reluctant to do any sort of best of list because I do not feel like I have seen enough to have any strong opinions about bestness. Um, so I uh, always like to fall back on favoriteness. These are these are my favorite films of the year, and uh, they may or may not be your favorites, but they are mine. But before I get to my number five, I will note some things that I definitely wanted to check out uh, in time for this and was not able to, most of which have already been mentioned. Minari, definitely another round, 40-year-old version I'm really interested in. Soul, you all got to see Soul, but I didn't because I don't mm. get screeners anymore. Um, <laughs> and I was, I've was i only been able to watch one of the Small Axe films and I just feel like I I have a feeling Small Axe will will come up and maybe we'll, we'll discuss a little about how it is meant to work on top film lists, but... Um, Safe to say none of them are going to be on my top five, but I do have sort of an expanded top 20, but I only ranked my top five because I hate ranking. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to real quick uh, just rattle off the uh, 15 unranked films on my top 20 in uh, alphabetical order. Uh, and they are alphabetical. My God. <laughs> yeah, I, I, did this, I did this just for you, Scott. <laughs> this is just the biggest, most adorable screw you, Scott, I've ever seen. And I say that as a professional screw you, Scottian. <laughs> All right. Screw you, Scott. Here are my (laughs) six through 20 films in alphabetical order. American Utopia, The Assistant, Bad Education, Boy State, Crip Camp, Emma, Eurovision, Kajillionaire, Lover's Rock, The Nest, Onward, Sela and the Spades, Sound of Metal, Swallow, and What the Constitution Means to Me. 
that also uh, constitutes a large portion of the films I saw this year. So we're definitely <laughs> taking a sort of expansive view. But those are all films that I enjoyed a lot, and I think they all have many things to recommend them um, in different respects. But yeah, thanks um, for the sale and the spade reminder. I've not seen that turn up on a lot of lists, but it's definitely a film I the early, it was on my radar earlier in the year. I kind of forgotten about. Yeah, for sure. But as for my number five, it is Shocker, a film that we talked about on this podcast. Hmm. And I am prepared for all of you to kind of give me a weird look when I say it is my number five film of the year. But it was Palm Springs. <laughs> and Tasha's shaking her head as, as, as I I'm knew she would. I'm shaking my head to, to indicate you're not getting a weird look for that one. Oh. I, I think it's a perfectly yeah. cromulent choice. Okay, good. No, it was, not, it was on delight. my top 10, but it kind of got swapped out a little bit. But it was, it was. I, I liked it a lot too. Yeah, I mean, I always, when I make these lists, which I uh, do less and less frequently, but I always want to have at least one slot for a good, solid, well-executed comedy. And I think Palm Springs definitely is that. I also think it's more than that. I think think that it's a really smart twist on two film tropes, not just the time loop uh, film, but the romantic comedy. And I think it does interesting things with the tropes of both of those formats. I think the performance from Christian Milati and Andy Samberg are both really strong, but Christian Milati in particular, her character in that film, I think was just such an interesting take on the rom-com heroine. And I just thought it was smart and interesting and almost a little devastating the way that film like forces her to reckon with her worst self over and over and over again and the trauma of that and what that forces her to do and how it affects her relationship with Andy Samberg's character. I think it was just a really smart film and a really funny film and that early scene of Andy Samberg navigating the uh, dance floor at the wedding he's been to countless times expertly is one of my favorite scenes of the year for sure. I've seen it gift. It's become kind of a little bit of a meme, <laughs> that fluid movement through the dance floor. It's so great. Uh, my qualifications, yay, yay for ranking. Yay, ranking. <laughs> and then uh, uh, my regrets for films I did not see. I did not see Dunda. I did not see City Hall with Fred Wiseman. I did not see Tesla. I did not see uh, Vitalina Varela, which made a lot of lists. That's Pedro Costa, though I've been a little bit cool on Costa films in the past. I've got a ton of honorable mentions, American Utopia, 14, Collective, which is a great documentary, Time, another great documentary, Boy State, another great documentary, Bad Education, The Vast of Night, Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, Minari, which I'm pretty sure we're going to do later on the show. It comes out for real in February, uh, Wolf Walker's. Sound of Metal, A White White Day, and Soul. Those are honorable mentions. And I did have a top 10, so I'll run through those again quite quickly. <laughs> My 10 would be Another Round, uh, which is the uh, Thomas Vinterberg-directed movie with Mads Mikkelsen, where about four high school teachers who decide as an experiment to drink during the day, <laughs> see if it will help them uh, as in their work and as into their social life. And uh, things go a little bit awry, as you imagine. But if you if you are a Mads Mikkelsen person as I am, it is absolutely amazing. It has my favorite ending of the year. Uh, Beanpole, which is a quite sad Russian film, extremely sad, but beautifully done. I'm thinking of ending things, the Charlie Kaufman film, which we discussed on the show. Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets, which is a very interesting documentary fiction hybrid from the Ross Brothers about the closing of a bar on the edge of Las Vegas. And uh, Baccarat, which Keith and I talked about on a Patreon episode, absolutely wild, kind of instant cult classic in the making. Uh, so all that out of the way, uh, my number five is... Nomadland, the new film by Chloe Zhao, uh, the director of The Rider, in really just like the most American 
film of the year. It actually reminded me a little bit of a Genevieve favorite, uh, American Honey. They kind of had the same kind of open road quality and it just it's so much an embodiment of what's great and what's terrible about this country it's it's about the gig economy it's about economic insecurity it's about the promise of the open road and of the formation of communities and the striking beauty and marvel of the american landscape i mean all that it's so dramatic in that sense and it's anchored by a wonderful performance by Francis McDormand and a really good perform, another really good supporting performance by David Strathairn, who I'm really missing in movies. There were several moments in the film that just really moved me and, and sort of haunted me. And I, I think um, you know it seems to be turning up at a lot of a lot of number ones. Maybe it's going to be on on some of your lists, but uh, I really liked it. And it ended up being one of four films with a woman director on my top five list, which is kind of unusual for me um, <laughs> because. I don't know. This is the year you decided you liked women. Yes, I like <laughs> women. Women were okay. Yes, women are good. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. I mean, I usually like my movies a little more male gazy, but the, this year was different. Um, so uh, so Nomadland, number five. Hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that film, you know, at length on the podcast when it comes out, you know, for more people to see. Uh, so that's not my number five. Let's move on to number four, Keith Phipps. Uh, number four is uh, First Cow by Kelly Reichardt, which we also talked about on the show. So I have I've exhausted everything I have to say about it. No, I love that <laughs> film. And it was um, uh, it's a, such an unusual story of, of friendship and uh, a really touching relationship and a exploring a moment in history when things weren't quite settled, but also where we could see you know, the possibilities of frontier kind of closing in and, and some really very, um, not, you know, not un- unpleasing in very American ways. Uh, but it's also being a Reichardt film, which is beautifully shot, uh, and sensitively realized. It's got a great score by William Tyler, a guitarist who, uh, puts out lovely instrumental records. Uh, yeah. And it's got a really great, I, I love the framing device of this, of this film. Uh, it's, it's so nicely done and so, so haunting and, and, and touching in, in its way. Uh, so yeah, great movie. First cow didn't see it in the theater. Wish I had, but uh, you know, not enough to brave. Not, unlike Scott, not enough to brave the early, the first wave of, of the coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I I did not get the coronavirus during that screening, so it was. Yeah. Tasha, how about your number four? Well, I feel like I'm not doing my job if I make a top ten list for the year that doesn't include something that's probably not going to be on anybody else's list. As I said earlier, like idiosyncratic films, I like very specific films, and it really just didn't get more specific than this this year than The Platform, which is a debut uh, movie from Spain by Galder Gaztelu Urutia. I saw this movie in 2019 at Toronto, and then I promptly saw it again at Fantastic Fest uh, just a few weeks later. I'm not a big movie rewatcher, but I just I wanted to experience it again. And I'm part of like a film club sort of thing in Chicago where I give the participants a film and then moderate a discussion with 20 people. And I watched it again in order to introduce it to them because... I just wanted to talk about this film with like insightful people. Yeah, I feel I feel like it's overlooked for any number of reasons. Um, one being that it's a science fiction movie that premiered on Netflix, which just buys up little indie science fiction movies and <laughs> dumps them in like by the bucket onto the platform with no notice or warning in some cases, like they're chumming the waters, just like a bucket of shrimp dumped into the sea is kind of how they approach their science fiction movies sometimes. And you can find some real treasures on there if you're looking for them. 
like this movie, which is a nuanced exploration of wealth inequity and the responsibilities of power and how we relate to other people uh, above us and below us in social class, in economic status. Uh, but it's also just a terrifyingly oppressive horror movie, uh, a horror of proximity movie, a horror of isolation movie. On top of everything else, it's kind of a quarantine movie. It came out on Netflix in March, just as quarantine was really kicking in. And it's about people in a, a futuristic science fiction prison. And it's got some of that like no exit quality of, of hell is other people. Like whoever you're stuck with is the definition of hell itself. This movie is visually grubby, just filthy. The, the people in it are, are dirty and living in dirty circumstances. The cinematography is deliberately murky and grim. It's oppressive, just in all the right ways. Every aspect of this, it feels like Wolfwalkers, not in the uplift or the bright colors or the, the cheer or the humor, but in the sense that everything was meticulously, thoughtfully planned. And it's also just exciting. You know, it's it's one of those films where you don't know what's coming next from scene to scene to scene. I really wish this movie was giving more love. Uh, the platform. Okay. Um, That's my uh, number four. Uh, Genevieve, what about you? Number four. My number four is a film that we discussed not on the podcast, but on the Patreon in uh, the context of a larger discussion of the films of Gina Prince-Bythewood. So my number four is The Old Guard, the superhero film that hit Netflix earlier this year, starring Charlize Theron as an uh. immortal uh, superhero, sort of um, the leader of a group of immortals that have sort of been wandering the earth for centuries. It is based on a, a very good comic by Greg Rocca, but the reason it rates so highly on my list is that it made me love violence. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a, a very uh, violent and very action-y film. And I think Gina Prince-Bythewood does a very good job with the action choreography. And I think this is both a superhero film in the mold that we've grown accustomed to and also not at all. Like, it's very satisfying. It has, you know, this verve to it, but it also feels very distinct and not just because it is on Netflix, you know, it's a film I, I, I liked a lot. I think Theron was great, as was Kiki Lane, who plays sort of the, the newest member of the old guard. And I feel like it, it had a pretty good amount of buzz when it came out, but it, it flared out pretty quickly. So I was pleased to be reminded of it when I was uh, making this list. I was like, oh, yeah, that was one of my favorite movie watching experiences this year. So the old guard. Scott, on to you. So my number four is Lovers Rock, the uh, second film, or I guess you're, you guys you call it, the, the, in order of release, the second of the uh, small acts movies made by uh, Steve McQueen about West Indian immigrants in England. Lovers Rock, I mean, it's just, you know, you kind of search for movie moments a lot of the time. You kind of want these kind of indelible scenes that are something that happened in a film. This is like a film of all of that this one long movie moment. I mean, it's about escape and it's about music and it's about romance. And in the context of the entire series, it's a respite of sorts, even though the context of it is that it's at a house party populated by people who at the time were discriminated against in actual clubs. And so this would be uh, these house parties were, would be where these sort of West Indian descendants uh, would go. You know, it's just it's just a feeling. It's a vibe of a film, and you know, it's it's a kind of a dust till dawn experience, and it's just it's a this is just blissful 
high for 70 minutes long and uh you know but but also suggestive and substantive and i think you can kind of really get granular in it and see a lot of interesting moments of discord and interesting moments of passion and i love it and it has at least two or three of my favorite like sequences of the year inside of it and again this is just a 70 minute long movie so uh, lovers rock by steve mcqueen that's my number four there's just a, like a straight up gender studies dissertation to mm-hmm. be written on Lover's Rock in terms of the different approaches uh, men make to women over the course of that film as they're trying to pick them up. A lot of that film is just kind of centered on men on the prowl and women who are are not, are not receptive in a variety of ways and how the approaches change based on how the women respond. But you end up feeling a little like you're speed dating along mm, with them yeah. as you watch like all of these clashes and conflicts that sometimes are very uncomfortable yes. and sometimes they're kind of sweet. And yeah. It's just fascinating. You absolutely nailed it. That's exactly the feeling of just like, it, you know, there's a volatility to these encounters and they can kind of go either way. And the film just captures it all. And it's so inspired. So let's move on to number three, shall we? Keith, what is your number three? Did you hear about Dick Johnson? Dick, Johnson, <laughs> Dick Johnson's dead, except he's not. Uh, you know, that's it's part of the uh, it's part of the wonderful play between reality and, and fantasy. And and uh, in uh, Kirsten Johnson's documentary about her father as he slips into dementia and their attempts to basically turn that experience into art, turn the experience into something that that means something to both of them together. Um, and you know, by way of staging his death, but that sort of like. If that sounds gimmicky, it's it's not. It's really more like a gateway into a deeper meditation as to on memory and, and loss and and uh, what he wants in his remaining days, how he'll, he'll be remembered, and and what he's meant, and the and then the act of uh, making a film too. It's 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 less concerned with that than than Johnson's first film, Camera Person. But I, I think that's you know how film preserves things as well. I think one of the most touching. I just watched it again. One of the most touching sequences is the sequence with her mother, who's succumbed to dementia herself and is deep into. Uh, that when she was filmed and, and the Johnson's voiceover saying this is the only footage I have of my mother. This is a woman who f- films everything, and this is all you know. You can you can sense the regret. This is all she's captured of her, and this you know she's not going to make that mistake with her father though. And the, the other thing I love about it is he's a wonderful character. He's someone you want to spend a feature length with. He's just a very sweet, open, smart curious man who would be worthy of a, of a documentary uh even without these special circumstances. So uh can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, so check it out if you haven't already. Yeah, I have a feeling that's going to come up again. <laughs> I'm yeah. just going to say. Yeah. Um, it, it, sooner than you may think. Yeah, oh, <laughs> this is exciting. Uh, so, Tasha, what is your number three? Uh, I just finished talking about this not long ago, so I'll try to keep it short. Aaron Sorkin's Trial of the Chicago 7 was maybe my biggest surprise of the year. There were certainly films that I went into knowing nothing about, so I got to have that experience of surprise of discovering something just completely unexpected and and unforeseen. The platform was one of those. But this is a movie that I went into kind of resistant because I felt I already knew everything about it. Like I knew a fair bit about the history because I live in Chicago. I certainly think of Aaron Sorkin as a very known figure, a very uh, known set of, of circumstances. But this movie just charmed me from uh, like almost minute one. It's definitely the most conventional pick on my top 10 uh, for this year in terms of kind of like old school filmmaking, in terms of 
the banter, the beats in terms of it being a based on a true story, but also fictionalized for maximum emotional impact uh, kind of thing in terms of feeling a little like a, an awards bait, prestige triumph of the underman kind of story. And I don't care. It's just entertaining. Practically every moment of it is either emotionally grabby or just funny. Like even some of the grimmer things that happen in the movie are presented in such a a lively, bouncy way with such big personalities and colorful characters that they wind up being entertaining. This is the time of year where we're normally just dumped on with a thousand, usually it's a thousand screeners. This year, it's a thousand links to an online codes. But we know that as we're delving into these movies, we're going to see rape and we're going to see incest and we're going to see broken homes and families and we're going to see people having their lives destroyed over and over and over for dramatic impact. And it just gets so oppressive and depressing. This is a story about uh, repression and racism and uh, systematic flaws and politics in a way that's relevant today. And just every minute of it is, is entertaining and lively and engaging. So uh, Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix, I highly recommend it. A lot of Netflix love so far. Mm. Uh, very interesting. Mm. Uh, Genevieve, what about you, number three? Have you heard? Dick Johnson is dead. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Keith, uh, for uh, getting to that before me, because now I can just say what what Keith said. The only thing that I will add to it is that what I really admired about this film is how it like forces you to have really complex emotional responses and to kind of interrogate yourself as you're watching it about, you know, why are you reacting the way you are to something like it's it's like that I shouldn't be laughing at this movie. But I, I like films that sort of challenge you to think about why you're reacting to them the way you are. And I feel like Dick Johnson is dead is sort of the pinnacle of that. Scott, how about you? My number three is First Cow, the last film I saw in theaters, uh, and then I saw it again. And uh, Ke- Kelly Reichard has been a longtime favorite. She hasn't made a film that I haven't loved. Um, I love this one, too. I think it's so specific to the details of the story of the of using this cow for its milk to make these oily cakes, which then become a, kind of a big deal. And it's a very one-of-a-kind story. It almost feels like a short story. It's a film that touches on issues of American capitalism and, and immigration, but with a deftness of touch. I mean, this is a film, not since her first film, River of Grass, is a film of hers reminded me so much of Jim Jarmusch. They seem to share a very similar sensibility, which is a sensibility I love. And um, yeah, this is very accomplished. And it's been this part of this year has been weird enough to where as short changed as First Cow was, the sense that it was in theaters for an eye blink and then came back months later on VOD. It does feel like there's been a a lot of attention for that film that it may not have gotten before, which is just attention that she richly deserves because she's a director of so much integrity and independence and all all of that is so much embodied in in, uh, the themes of this work as well. So first Kyle, my number three. So before we move on to number two, I wanted to share another Voicemail. This is from our longtime friend and collaborator, Emily Vanderwerf. Emily, 
Hey, Next Picture Show fans, it's Emily Vanderwerf of Vox, and also I was on the episodes where we talked about Groundhog Day and Palm Springs. I'm sure you miss me. I'm sure you want to have me back. I'll be back as soon as I can, but I want to talk about a movie I love this year that I think has maybe not gotten as much attention as it should have, and that is surely the 2020 film from Josephine Decker, who also directed the wonderful Madeline's Madeline a couple of years ago. It stars Elizabeth Moss, who's one of my favorite performers working right now, and I think she's so good at using micro-expressions, and Decker is one of those directors who's great at capturing actors' faces, so they're really kind of a wonderful match for each each other. There's something suffocating and slightly sinister about this movie, but not in the way that it sounds like as I say that. There's something about it that smells a little bit like somebody left it out back behind the house too long, like a newspaper that's been left under a porch for several decades and then you unearth it. That's kind of what this movie feels like, and I'm sorry if that makes no sense, but I want to just talk about one shot, which is Elizabeth Moss is playing the great novelist Shirley Jackson. This is a movie in which she's trying to write this novel and she sort of falls into this weird psychosexual codependent relationship with a young woman. Shirley gets hauled to a party and we cut to just seeing her sitting on a couch with this weird grimace on her face, like holding a drink out from her body, just sort of looking like she can't wait to be anywhere else. For me, it's one of those shots I keep coming back to, and uh, I've seen better movies this year. I, this is in my top 10, so I think it's great, but I don't know that I've seen a performance I've clicked with quite as much as Elizabeth Moss in this movie. I think she's been a little overlooked. Anyway, happy holidays, everybody, and here's to a 2021 that is at least somewhat better than 2020. Low bar, but we're going to get there. So, yeah, surely a film that most of, uh, I didn't see it, you but, but, you, but you all you all did. That was the one that Allison from from earlier in the, in the podcast uh, joined, oh, there, joined right, you on. Right. So she, it's she, all she full made, circle. <laughs> it, is, it is full circle. That was a film that did not end up making my list, but is very much worth recommending. And God, what a year for Elizabeth Moss! Like this, that, and uh, Invisible Man. I had a real. I was turning in my ballot for the Chicago Film Critics Awards and trying to figure out which Elizabeth Moss performance I wanted to have on the ballot and i think i put both of them on because <laughs> she's really great in both so thank you for that emily okay so let's move on to our number two keith what is your number two film of the year i've got nomadland which uh you know again i think i think you covered it really well and, and we're gonna talk about it at length um for an episode i'm, I'm guessing probably right you know we nailed it down but uh but it would be it would be a good one it's, it's a oh, very yeah. rich film and, and it's not you might go into it thinking this is a film about People who fall through the cracks of the of the gig economy and economic inequity in, in America, and it is about that very much so. But it's also about a lot more. It's about the way a particular woman is both kind of forced into and drawn into this life of a wandering existence. Yeah, and McDormand is uh, so good, good actor, Trench McDormand. That's that's you know that's why it's my number two film. Is it going to come up later? <laughs> Again, it's going to come it, up. It it's going to come up right the heck now. Yeah, oh, is Tasha next? Are you saying wait a second? Wait, wait, really? wait, wait, wait. Do all of you have this film at number two on your list? Mm. I that, do. Is this where we're at? I also do. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> all right, well let's just. Wait, right, Scott, well, do you also? Have, no, I, 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 I had my number five. That's right. That's right. I got my Nomadland out of my system, but you all apparently liked it even more than me. You all put it at number two on your list. So just have a little discussion amongst yeah. yourselves here. Uh, uh, Tasha, what's your, what's your little, what, what do you want to say about Nomadland? 
Well, I didn't, when you brought it up at five, I kind of wanted to just get involved right there because you mentioned the fact that it reminded you of a Genevieve favorite, American Honey. And I wanted to kick in and be like, no, that was one of my big favorites too. I I interviewed uh, Andrea Arnold about it. I, I was a little bit obsessed with it in terms of finding new ways to cover it just because I wanted people to encounter American Honey so much. And these films go so well together. It also feels like a really good companion to Leave No Trace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Everything that you said about the American vistas, just like the beauty of some of these spaces, I think is is really uh, spot on. There have been a lot of lists this year of you know films that make you feel like you're outdoors, like films that open up spaces for you, films that make you feel less lonely. And for the most part, I haven't gotten that kind of sensation from movies, but I got it here. I, I honestly, the spaces are so big. It was also one of the first movies that I saw this year that just really made me ache for not being able to see it in a theater because Mm -hmm. it would be so spectacular on the big screen. And some of those compositions just feel so designed for a giant space. I love Frances McDormand. I love her performance. I love the egolessness of it here, the, the smallness of it, the just preparedness of it, I guess. There's just no whimsy in this character there's a kind of defensiveness that's buried so deep. Like you have to go on a, an emotional journey to find the core of this character. And it's just a really rewarding emotional journey that I feel like I took with the actress, which is not something that happens to me very often. Yeah. I, I just really dug this movie. Genevieve, what, what, what do you have to say about Nomadland? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll add that in addition to the American Honey comparisons, uh, it also reminded me greatly of Zhao's previous film, which we discussed on this podcast, The Rider, especially in its visuals and those vistas. And uh, in particular, in both films have uh, very moving central scenes uh, around a campfire. The one in Nomadland it hit me real hard, um, as, as did a lot of this movie. But, you know, for everything that's been said about it being sort of a you know portrait of the gig economy and and loss and all this it doesn't feel like a dire or hopeless movie to me like it's like like i I don't want to like get into too much of the plot because as has been said many times i think this is a film we'll probably end up discussing on the podcast although i'm not a pairing idea isn't coming immediately to mind but um, there'll be plenty yeah I confess that I did pause it in the middle of screening to look up when American Honey came out to see if it was a plausible uh, pairing. <laughs> we already talked about American Honey on the podcast. <laughs> I don't care. We just we, I, the, as many times as I can talk about that. that movie. I I had forgotten about that. I had also forgotten that it was so recent because everything was a million years ago yeah. at this point. <laughs> But like ultimately, it's like a film about being alone, but not lonely. And I think that McDormand's performance does a lot to make that feel real and not saccharine, but also like kind of a special point to arrive at. Um, And also the score is really, really good. Talk about wanting to see this in a theater, like for the visuals, but also for the sound. Like it's a film that uses music, but also quiet environmental noise and I think really purposeful and effective ways. Um, yeah, it's really great all around. Scott, did you also put Nomadland <laughs> at your number one? <laughs> at your number two, you mean? Uh, uh, yeah. Um, no, well, we I, know it's not number two because you so already number said. Five, so you think you had to put it at number five and then also at number yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, like bookending everything else yeah, a little bit. No, I did, I did not. But I do obviously admire some. Maybe that's going to be the only one that crosses over onto everyone's list. We'll see. 
The suspense, it kills me. So Scott, you're you're the odd man out on uh, No Man Land at number two. So what is your number two? <laughs> yeah, I, I underrated No Man Land apparently. <laughs> uh, my number two is The Assistant. This is a film that just blew me away. The audacity of it, the minimalist minimalism of it, the you know, Julia Garner's performance, the tenor of the times. I mean, I think if you, you talk about a film that's going to define the Me Too movement, I think you know. I don't know if there's a film that better encapsulates it just by giving you you know the horror of an office environment you know in this case sort of a, a weinsteinish office environment of toxicity and oppression and heaviness and silence uh, it's a film that's inspired by another one of my favorite films of all time uh gene dealman which is also a minimalist film of a much longer minimalist film. <laughs> uh, but I appreciated its discipline. I appreciated that it really just has one big scene, and that scene is extraordinary. Uh, the scene where she goes to see someone in HR, played by Matthew McFadden. That scene knocked me out, and then the ending just had me in tears. Both times I saw it, I thought it was so devastating. Where it left us, where we're left with this person who has an ambition to be involved in movies to produce movies and she has her parents on the other end of the line and they have her their hopes invested in her her future as well and we just see how crushing you know this incredible opportunity has become for her big fan of that movie so the assistant number two for me fascinated by the prospect of a movie that moved you to tears because i think uh genevieve and i both talk a fair bit on this podcast about occasions where we cry at movies i think maybe genevieve because she's accustomed to it and me because i'm not <laughs> uh but we hear very little about the movies that move you guys to tears we just don't talk about it yeah yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, plenty, you know, the, you know, the big, the big Wolfwalkers sequence, that was another one that choked me up both times I saw that film. So uh, I'm capable. What is the Lebowski <laughs> scene? Strong men also cry. Remember that? He says that. The big Lebowski does. Anyway, uh, so this is exciting. I'm not going to do the drum roll thing. No, but uh, we, we are about to go to our number one films of the year which hopefully will not all be the same uh but i'm curious to start with you keith what is your number one film of 2020 my number one film is lovers rock uh i could go watch that again uh right now uh and it's kind of a stand-in in some ways for the rest of small acts which are all quite remarkable education is probably my second favorite and that easily could have been on the list too but lovers rock is just a special undertaking a wonderful accomplishment a picture of a time and a place that's that, that's not there for many reasons uh everyone on this podcast would, would never be able to go to but uh but you know what this very particular space means for this community what this music means what it means and you know maybe this just hit a little harder this year but what it means to be in a room with a bunch of people uh but also uh you know as with the rest of small acts, like you know, a lot of with George Floyd, with with all the you know the other protests this year, there's there's so many echoes of what's happening now in 2020, uh, in what was happening in England in 60s, 70s, and 80s, and the way things you know some problems are are still with us and need to be we need to be reminded of that. Uh, but you know that's more in the background of Lover's Rock than in any of the other entries, which is, uh, you know, there is sort of, there is tension and there is a sexual threat to it, but it's mostly joy and community and and uh, and uh, great music. And I was just listened to the soundtrack for, or a playlist drawn from the soundtrack before uh, starting this podcast. And uh, if you haven't watched it yet, uh, 
I'll send you away with a recommendation that you do. <laughs> 70 minutes. 70 minutes. You can get it yeah. done. It's so easy. And I just think it stands to go back to it for just a second. Like, I think it it does so well both as part and apart from the rest of the Small Axe movies and that, and that it is nothing like the other four and it gives you a different mm-hmm. feeling than the other four. But of course, it also is part of this larger tapestry that he is creating here. Incredible achievement this year for Steve McQueen. Tasha Robinson, what is your favorite film of 2020? Well, it's not Lover's Rock. And <laughs> not because that isn't a fine film, but for other reasons I may get into on film spotting, um, but can't really get into here just yet. I went with Boys State, the documentary, the political documentary by Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. One of the experiences that film critics get to have that make like the the hasslier uh, portions of the job worth it is that feeling of seeing something at a film festival and just like knowing ahead of time that it's going to eventually hit the public that other people are going to be able to see this movie and you're going to be able to talk about it with them. And when I saw this movie at Sundance, it just it lit up at like every pleasure center in my brain. It's a documentary about an experiment that happens every year in most of the American states where they round up a thousand young achiever boys, like uh, 16, 17 year old boys with political ambitions and interests, just for the most part, like focused, interested kids and have them spend a week forming a government. And some of them goof off at it and some of them take it way too seriously. But over the course of this documentary, tracking a handful of contenders for some of the higher offices within this like made up experimental uh, government, the filmmakers just basically find everything, everything wrong with American politics boiled down to first principles and the moment where a bunch of 16 year olds discover it. You have these kids go in ambitious and idealistic and you have them coming out on the other side talking like uh, political lifers, just like, I really didn't want to compromise my principles, but it was the only way I could get people to vote for me. So I just didn't represent any of the things that I believed in that speech (laughs) uh, in order to make sure that, uh, that I secured the nomination. You just, you keep hearing that over and over. As with some of the other films on my list this year, it's highly entertaining. Documentaries are often so depressing these days. So many of them are about the terrible ways we're wrecking our environment. We're wrecking our political system. We're wrecking our future in a thousand different ways. This one certainly isn't a feel-good movie that shies away from the problems with the world, but it approaches them in such lively and interesting ways and through such colorful real-life personalities. I love Boys State to Death. I think it's a really telling and insightful movie about why American politics looks the way it does, but it's not grim about it. And it's uh, certainly not devoid of like big, full-on horse laughs. So <laughs> I wish more people could see it. It's an Apple TV Plus exclusive right now. Mm-hmm. And that makes me a little sad because I was looking forward to it hitting a broader world. But it's the movie I think I've come back to, like thought about most this year, just over and over and over again, like all of the relevance of it, all of the the big people in it who I want to know what they're going to do with their lives. I I think some of these kids are going to be running the country uh, 20, 30 years from now. But which ones? Hopefully the right ones. (laughs) Can can we be the good ones, please? Steven! I'm going to spoil the movie or the future. Oh my god. (laughs) 
Yeah, no, I, I like that movie a lot too. Yeah, Steven, Steven Garza favorited a tweet of mine recently, and it just it, it warmed my heart. <laughs> you know, one thing I will say to back up you, Tosh, is that I, I saw this with a festival audience too. I saw this at a very large, the largest screening house at True False with a huge audience and like it was like the explosion the excitement in the room during that screening was so memorable and so electric and it was a little bit sad to me to to see it kind of get siloed off (laughs) into apple plus land so who who knows who's seeing it on that platform because uh it is a film that definitely merited a very large discussion i don't know if it got quite discussion that it deserved but maybe it yeah, will in the future that's probably something for a whole other podcast yes. but, but you know unless you're genevieve who describes more streaming services than she than she knows that she that she has you know <laughs> i mean you know this this ends up on apple plus fast night ends up on amazon wolf mm-hmm. walkers is just on apple plus yeah. you know it, it does not reach everybody you no. know which is which is too bad and no. these are films that, that should reach everybody so genevieve your number one film of 2020 speaking of films that are siloed off on apple tv plus uh wolf walkers is my Mm. number one and i'm willing to concede there may be some recency bias here at play but also no it's a great film it was it was (laughs) one of my it was my favorite viewing experience of the year i mean we just talked about it last week uh, so i don't know how much more there is to say about it but i think the the reason i wanted to put it at number one is because it is an animated film that is also sort of like a love letter to animation. You know, it it has the pencil marks in it and it is like not even experimenting. It's like oh, like paying homage to like different visual uh, and animation styles throughout. And then on top of that, it also just has a really good story and really good character and really good performances. And it's just like all cylinders on are firing. It's like the peak of animated movies to me. It's like everything that I want out of an animated film for children, for adults, it doesn't matter. So Wolfwalkers, I kind of am afraid it's going to have the same sort of fate as, as Boy's State. You know, I, I think it's gotten, well, I don't know. It's I feel like uh, Boy's State got pretty rapturous reviews and ended up you know, kind of fizzling. So I think that could very easily happen to Wolfwalkers too, despite the the great reviews it got. But um, it will be a film that I always uh, treasure. And, uh, you know, it's it's there waiting for me on Apple TV+. Plus. <laughs> yeah. Just, just Ted Lasso and <laughs> Mythic Quest in that one. Um, and also the Sofia Coppola film. It's so weird. Just like, oh, oh yeah. Sophia that's another Coppola, one I didn't watch. Yeah. It's like, yeah. like, oh, gosh, okay. that's that ex- That was a pretty good film and there yeah, it's it is a good movie and yeah i feel like it really didn't get talked about at no. all nope um and it's a bill murray movie yeah <laughs> i mean I everything know. else I know. with a really interesting like, it's kind of like him doing the op- in some ways the opposite of, of his uh of his lost in translation performance like here's someone who's happy when he shouldn't be but uh yeah. um you know hey, uh, hey get bill murray out of my wolf walkers pick yeah. this is not- oh, sorry 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 <laughs> just everybody just get, just get your trial week or whatever with going with with apple plus and see a bunch of stuff because they do they do have some worthwhile things right now all right scott what apple plus uh film is your number one <laughs> yeah, we, we noticed that you've somehow cleverly managed to arrange this so you get the final word yeah. what is that final oh, word gonna be? <laughs> yes i always like yeah, yeah, i'm hosting i can do what i want well this is this one is silent away on netflix this is dick johnson is dead mm-hmm. um I, I when i saw it back in march i i, I said there's 
no, I would be hugely surprised if I f- saw a film this year I liked more than Dick Johnson is Dead, and I was correct. I did not see a film I liked more than it. It's been talked about a lot already. Um, you know, I, I find it immensely moving the relationship between the filmmaker Kirsten Johnson and her father, and it's thoughtful, it's, it's heartfelt, it's funny. I think the the notion of filming someone who's in decline like that could seem ghoulish or depressing but i think the film is surprisingly palatable and life-affirming and um exhilarating to me to watch it feels good for me to watch uh which i did not expect and i think it is it's a film that embodies a lot of the refreshing changes and evolution that we've seen in documentary filmmaking in general Cameron person was this doing this as well but kirsten johnson is sort of opening things up she's opening up the discussion she's telling us that upfront the documentaries are about a collaboration between a filmmaker and a subject she's being open about documentary ethics those are right on the table for us to talk about and to, to um, debate there's you know it, it, the way I've descri- described it since I've seen it it's like it's like uh, an Abbas Kiarostami film that you can just watch with any your whole family <laughs> you know it's like that it, it's got that level of profundity but also that level of accessibility um, I love it and I think she's the bee's knees she's so good uh um her, these two these two films are camera person and dick johnson is dead are just monumental achievements and uh you know and, and all the work that she's done as a cinematographer and as just a, a thinker about documentary film i mean it's just amazing so dick johnson is dead number one for me is it is it a first on this podcast to have somebody uh, describe his number one film of the year as the bee's knees <laughs> <laughs> You know, I uh, I don't know. I just I'm full of homey Midwestern expressions or something. I don't, I can't explain it. And also 1930s slang. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, it's it's. Yeah, uh, I thought this movie was the cat's pajamas. Cat's pajamas. I'll, maybe I'll mix it up next time and call it the cat's pajamas. But Dick Johnson is dead is number one, and there it is on Netflix for you to see it's, as it's been there for quite some time. <laughs> And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out January 5th and January 12th. Scott, what's coming up next? In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Are you sure about that, Benjamin Franklin? Because on our next episodes of The Next Picture Show, we're going to learn that death may be negotiable. The new Pixar movie Soul, now streaming on Disney+, Plus, is about Joe Gardner, a jazz pianist who shelved his dreams of performing to become a middle school music teacher. After finally catching his big break to play alongside a famed saxophonist in a New York City club, he falls down a manhole and dies, but he's willing to break every heavenly law to get back to Earth and make the gig. His lust for life recalls Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger's A Matter of Life and Death, in which David Niven's World War II fighter pilot cheats death, falls in love, and triggers an unprecedented trial to postpone his journey up the stairway to heaven. Though A Matter of Life and Death is not currently streaming on any of the usual services, it is available on Criterion DVD and Blu-ray, and a non-objectionable copy can be found on YouTube. So please join us. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of the year in film and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith Ips. 
Uh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. I post my links there. You can find me uh, at places like The Ringer. You can find me at GQ. You can find me at – I've got a few things coming up in Uproxx. Uh, I've got uh, uh, stuff coming up. Well, nothing Mel, nothing in the works for Mel, but something, I'm sure, at some point. Uh, TV Guide. I'm, I'm all over the place. Wow. Uh, <coughs> oh, I'm sorry. And, and Vulture, of course. Also, I usually, usually lead with Vulture. And, and Polygon, too. Wow, yeah. Sorry, I'm leaving out two of my favorite publications and two of my favorite editors. Wow. Uh, uh, Tasha, how about you? I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, where I host uh, articles like uh, Keith Phipps' <laughs> look back on the uh, the year in filmmaking and why going to the movies uh, was not was a bust in 2020, but actual movies were not. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Genevieve, how about you? I'm the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias. You can find my work at New York Times, Vulture, come on. Uh, at, <laughs> uh, and you can find it also on The Ringer and uh, The Guardian. And uh, I also am the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope's Musings blog, uh, which is uh, up and running again. Um, there's a new piece by Vikram Murthy on the site that I'm ex- really excited about. So check Yay. that out. It's about high fidelity. Uh, in oh, nice. the discussion surrounding it. Very long, uh, very, very well-argued essay, in my opinion. So check that out. Uh, you can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for assistance producing this podcast and his contribution to this podcast. The next picture show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Inside.